0: of Joel, God through the prophet Joel has given us constant reminders, constant warnings of this central theme of the day of the Lord. A day when God will act in judgment against all people. In the opening chapter to a people who had turned from God, God himself had sent locusts a plague that had massive impacts unlike anything they'd ever seen before. As a punishment for a people who had turned away from him. God not being embarrassed by it, but rather saying, tell your children about this, that they might know the seriousness of sin and the importance and the necessity of judgment. In the opening 11 verses of chapter 2, he described what this day of the Lord would look like for a people who would not repent and who would not turn. Even though we don't have the details of the specific conduct of the people, other than the fact that if they're called to return to the Lord, they've obviously departed from the Lord. What we do know, because what we know of the character of our God, is their actions warranted such a response. We've seen God's heart towards sin. We've seen the necessity... Of judgment to uphold God's good, just nature. But we've also seen his heart towards those who are sinful. Like right after he gave that grand warning in verses 1 to 11 of chapter 2 of what the day of the Lord would look like, he says, Yet even now, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. God's first preference always is that people will turn back to him in repentance and know the blessings are being restored to their God. Our God is slow to anger, but he is quick to restore And pour out his abundant blessings on those who are genuinely repentant. But he's also holy, righteous and just. The day of the Lord was not just like an empty threat just to make it sound a bit scary to make people act a particular way. It's not like a a parent who's kind of just come to their wits' ends and they just whip out this major thing and say, If you do this, you're never going to see a second of TV again in the entirety of your life. You know, sometimes when you go a little bit too far and you're like, I can't actually follow through on that. It's not like that. The day of the Lord is a guaranteed reality when sin will be judged. And in light of that reality, God's heart is that people would turn to him with all of their heart to be restored to him. That instead of wrath, they would find refuge in him. Because in that day, there is, essentially, there's two ways to experience God, his wrath or his refuge. So my hope is either to both to encourage us, those of the certain refuge that you have, or out of a deep love and concern, that you might escape that day, that you might come to find and know him as one who is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding and steadfast love to the truly repentant. We're going to look at the unwinnable war in verses 9 to 15, God's reputation and refuge in verses 16 to 17, and the never-ending blessings of 18 to 21. Firstly, the unwinnable war. The very description of unwinnable suggests that it would be futile. An absolute waste of time to even try. You might think that if something is impossible, nobody's going to attempt it. Now you and I, we've lived long enough in this world to know that the pride of mankind doesn't like the word impossible. What we tend to think is, we hear impossible go, oh yeah, maybe for those soft people, but not for me. And it's probably a produce of the kind of mantra that we, that we hear said in our world time and time again. You can do anything. You've just got to set your heart You can have whatever you want. That's not true, incidentally. Now, Paul tells us in the opening chapter of Romans that every single person born into this world knows that there is a God of eternal power. That's not just Paul just hypothetically putting out a bit of an idea. He says, because God has made it plainly known to them. Now, initially, people like to believe the lie, they exchange the truth for a lie because it's convenient. If you can convince yourself that God doesn't exist, then you don't need to worry about the fact that I'm accountable to God. And then you, you look for things that kind of fuel the belief that you want to be true so that when you hear things about that Joel says or Jesus says about the day of the Lord, you think, no, nah, it doesn't exist. Just wipe it off. If you're in that camp, I want you to challenge yourself for a little moment because God says he has made it plainly known to every single human being that he exists. But deep down, I know because of what God has said, that you know he exists. Therefore, when he speaks of matters a series of this, you can't afford just ignore it. And it would be unloving and uncaring of me to leave you in such a dangerous position to lay, to think, yep, God doesn't exist. Previously, when Joel described this day of the Lord in chapter 2, verses 1 to 11... He described it in graphic terms. It was no mistaking that it was unstoppable, unavoidable. We saw the the imagery there in verses 6 to 8. It said, Before them all peoples are in anguish, all faces grow pale. Like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on his way, they do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another, each marches in his path and they burst through the weapons and are not halted. It's kind of like, this is what the day would look like. There's nothing you can do to prevent it or stop it or even slow it down in any way whatsoever. Now, lest there be any claims of, oh, it's a bit of an unfair battle, the way we have it described in these verses we looked at this morning, it's like, bring all of your people... Bring all of your warriors, in fact, every farming bit of equipment you've got, turn those into weapons so you've got everything at your disposal. It's almost a total picture of the absolute pinnacle of human strength gathered together. Even the weak are to call upon themselves as warriors. Multitudes of multitudes, it says, all as warriors with every single weapon at their disposal. Sounds like quite a formidable group, these who are opposed to God. And then we read verses 11 to 12. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations." So here you've got this massive army of people who are opposed to God with all their worries, even the weak coming as warriors with every weapon at their disposal and the Lord simply sits and judges them. Just like chapter 2 verses 1 to 11, it is futile to think you can stand against or resist the Lord. Yet almost every single day I see people boldly declaring their resistance to God. Most of that stems from they're presuming that God's doing nothing to me now in my rebellion. So they're presuming either he doesn't exist or he's powerless. I've got nothing to worry about, they think. But his delay is because he loves you enough That he wants to have you have opportunity to turn and repent. He desires your salvation. His delay is not because of powerlessness, but of patience and love. As Paul expresses in the second chapter of Romans, he says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? That's why he's delaying. His patience and kindness is that you would turn to him in repentance to experience his joy of his salvation blessings. So don't foolishly think that his present seeming inactivity against rebellion means, I'm chilled. I can rebel against him and it doesn't matter at all. Yet our God cares enough for the people he's created in his image that he has provided very clear warnings about this day. It's funny though when people say, "Don't give us books like Joel; give us Jesus," and Jesus spoke more about this than anybody. He speaks of it as being a universal for all people, being unstoppable, and there being only one means of escape, and that is the salvation that God has initiated and provided. Jesus Christ crucified on behalf of sinners that by turning from our sin and trusting in him can we escape then he takes the agricultural imagery quite common to describe the nature of this judgment put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe go in tread for the winepress is full the vats overflow for their evil is great it's got just like a farmer swimming, swinging in a sickle, bringing in the harvest to gather in the multitudes who are there in the valley of judgment. God uses this imagery of harvesting for judgment in a number of places. Jesus himself does in Matthew chapter 13. We see it in Isaiah 17 and 63 as well. But probably the, the biggest New Testament citation It sort of brings both of these ideas together of both of swinging the sickle as well as the winepress we see in Revelation chapter 14. It says, Then I looked, and behold a white cloud, and seated on the cloud one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the clouds swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Another angel came out from the altar, and the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called the loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside of the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1600, 1600 stadia. It's quite a graphic image. And I'm not the sort of person who thinks it's a good idea to use fear to bring people to Jesus. After all, we come to God because we recognise that we have rebelled against him because of our sin. We need our sin dealt with, not just purely because we want to escape the consequences of our sin. If we don't have our sin dealt with, we are not free from the consequences either. But also I'm not one to hide from the fact that the day of the Lord when he comes in judgment isn't something to be feared. The writer of Hebrews says we know vengeance is mine. I will repay And again he says the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's the way God speaks of it. It would be foolish not to put it forward in that way. But it's not even these graphic depictions that actually stirs me more the most out of the things in this passage. The words that strike me more than anything else are the words of verse 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. It's those words, multitudes, multitudes. Now, even though I've heard people preach sermons on this passage as though, no, we're all in the valley of decision, we need to make a decision to to turn to God. The valley of decision is just a parallel for the valley of Jehoshaphat, the valley of judgment. It is God's judgment, his decision, not our decision. And in that valley, it says multitudes and multitudes. We're not talking a small handful of Hitler and a couple of mates. But as been the case of the majority of human history, the majority of people do not turn to God to deal with their sin. So amongst those multitudes will be neighbours, family members, people we work with, friends, people we see through the course of our daily life. And as someone who's experienced God's salvation ourselves, we must be cut to the heart when we hear multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at Second Corinthians chapter four, where we're reminded of our role in sharing the good news of salvation and God's empowerment to do so. Look at God's reputation and refuge in verses 16 to 17. When you read all these words of judgment, the sun and the moon will be darkened and the heaven shakes, even those who have been reconciled to God might think, how's that, how's that going to be for me? The Lord roars from Zion, utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earthquake, but the Lord is a refuge to his people a stronghold to the people of Israel. He is our refuge and we are secure in him. Regardless of what happens in this world, regardless of what happens on that day, he is our refuge. When I read those words, I, I recall how frequently I've read those words in the books of the Psalms. That God is our refuge, he's our stronghold. So just out of curiosity, I looked up 47 times in the Psalms, God is referred to as our refuge and, and seven times as our stronghold. He saves to the uttermost, the writer of Hebrews says. And we've seen that his, his heart is to desire to save. Brothers and sisters, you have a refuge and a stronghold and his name is Jesus. In your good times, in your hard times, you rest in him. He is your refuge. No one else, nothing else is your refuge. But everything he does, even his actions in judgment and in salvation, all of it is for his glory. That all might know that he is the Lord, our God. It's exactly what Joel tells us. He does this so you shall know both the refuge and the the judging that you'll know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain and Jerusalem shall be holy and strangers shall never pass through it again. Through all of his actions, everything he does is that people may know that I am the Lord your God for the display of his character, that he might be made known. If you recall back to chapter 2, when they were, made this appeal to God as they come back to him in repentance, what, one of the things they said, why should the nations speak poorly of our God? Why should they say, where is your God? They too were motivated by God and his reputation, his glory being made known. This God who says he dwells in Zion. Which instantly back in chapter 2 was the place where the warning was being sounded from. And now it is the place where he speaks of words of comfort. And for us today in our sitting, for those who have come to Christ, the author of Hebrews has this to say, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festival gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. If you are in Christ, you are God's holy habitation. You are in Zion, You are the temple. You are the heavenly or new Jerusalem. But as Joel speaks, much like a lot of prophecy, there is a near and a minor fulfillment pointing forward to a future and a complete fulfillment. And Joel chapter 3 points to those perfections of the eternal state, of the new heaven and the new earth, where it speaks where this Jerusalem will be perfectly holy, no strangers passing through at all, and as Christ's bride, that Revelation twenty-two calls the New Jerusalem, or Hebrews just has called us the Heavenly Jerusalem, to enter into that never-ending blessing. Verses eighteen to twenty-one are almost like a contrast between the destruction of the Lord's enemies with the blessing of His children. The enemies depicted by the traditional foes of Edom and Egypt, speaking of their nothingness that they will have. Whereas, on the other hand, God's children depicted in terms of abundance abundance of wine, milk, and water that Isaiah uses in chapter 55 as depicting that of the the everlasting covenant. But the repetition of the Lord dwelling amongst his people turns our minds and attention to the wonderful words of Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That how he speaks of the New Jerusalem coming down like a bride. This is the church adorned for her husband. God will dwell amongst His people forever, where there will be no strangers. There'll be none outside of God's children dwelling. There will be no evil. There, all of the effects of sin will be no more. Just the eternal blessing of being in the presence and fullness of God. What Joel describes as a fountain flowing from the house of the Lord, John speaks of in this way. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God, and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its, each fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be in it anything accursed but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light nor lamp nor sun for the Lord God will be their light and he will reign forever and ever. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Particularly after all of the the negative things that Joel has described, what he points us to and how that's going to be in the fullness of time for those who do turn to him in repentance and faith. So we say, come. When Joel describes this day of the Lord, it's a day of wrath. A day where God will enter into judgment against people for their sins either leading to eternal punishment or eternal blessing. Now, it would be so easy to think that what makes the divide between eternal punishment and eternal blessing is who's lived the best life, who, who's, who's reached a particular moral ethical standard. But the reality is, God says, all of us have fallen short, all of us have sinned. What determines between wrath and refuge is not how good you are because none of us are good enough. Yet Joel 2 shows us what God's heart is towards even the worst of the worst. Yet, even still, he says, turn to me with all of your heart, that we might turn to him, confessing our rebellion, recognising our deservedness of death, and giving thanks that God has provided the refuge. He has provided the salvation that Jesus Christ crucified on our place on behalf of sinners, regardless of how sinful they have been, raised in victory, and placed his spirit in those who turn to him in repentance and faith. So that all who call upon the name of the Lord, regardless of their past, will find him to be a refuge. The God who is slow to anger, quick to restore the genuinely repentant and desiring that all would come to him for salvation. While we repeat the phrase that towards the end of the revelation, come Lord Jesus, we also pray, until you do, here I am, use me. Use me to be an ambassador, speak the words of salvation, knowing that we live among multitudes of multitudes. That along with the Spirit and the bride, we would say, come. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us enough, that you have revealed yourself that you have not been quiet about our sin or kept it secret, nor have you kept it secret or quiet about the consequences of our sin. We thank you that it is in your character to be slow to anger, full of grace, mercy and abounding in steadfast love that, Lord, that it's the desire of your heart to restore the genuinely repentant, that you will never turn away the brokenhearted who are genuinely brokenhearted about this sin before you. And, Lord, for those who have come to know you as refuge, we give you thanks for the wonderful comfort that is in every season of life. But, Lord, may we also know the burden Of the multitudes of multitudes that we walk amongst every single day, that we might have confidence in the power of the message of the gospel that you have entrusted to each one of us as your disciples. Lord, may we see multitudes of multitudes be called to return to the Lord with all of their heart to experience your goodness your salvation, your refuge. Even the most wicked of sinners might rejoice and say, you are the Lord my God. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And for those who like to read ahead next week, I said the next two weeks we'll be looking at passages from Second Corinthians chapter 4, uh, beginning in verses 1 to 6 next week.